Thank you, Lord. We declare your worthiness today, oh God, in this house. We acclaim you. We adore you. We're in awe of you. As Lord, we prepare now to receive your word, we do so with glad and welcoming hearts. Come and speak to us now. Out of the fullness, Lord God, of your heart to us today, this day, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. This morning we are continuing a series that um, we began a couple of weeks ago, entitled Take Off. And um, our key scripture, if you want to look there, and I would encourage you to do so, comes out of Hebrews chapter 12, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it there or use the Bible located right in front of you. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is a year to engage, 2013. The Lord has been encouraging us as a congregation to engage, to engage with him, to engage with one another, and to engage in his mission out to the world. We have uh, recognized and come to understand that we have been called, that we have been sent, and that we have been given particular gifts to help us function fruitfully in his work. This particular series has to do with the, um, then in terms of, of Understanding that calledness, that sentness, and that giftedness that we have, what do we need to do in order then to be able to step out, and not just step out, but begin to run the race that has been set out for us? How is it that we can run fruitfully? How is it that we can run effectively? How is it that we can run purposefully into the call that God has given to us? And so what we're doing during these uh, weeks here this summer is that we are looking at things that we must take off in order for us to be able to run unhindered. So again, let me emphasize and look again at verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. But what I love about this as well is that word is actually, in the Greek, is a play on words in that the sin that so easily entangles is also the sin that is so easily avoided it's the sin that we are so easily able to get out from under and so that's what we're looking at and last week pastor ben did a beautiful job of helping us understand the first thing 
that we need to throw off. And can anybody help uh, Pastor Ben feel good this morning and help the rest of us remember what is it that we are to throw off? Pride. Oh, I think a lot of people were able to remember that. Okay. So we are to throw off pride. That's the first and foundational, you know, that's sort of fundamental to all other sins. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a second weight, a second sin that might entangle and weigh us down that the Lord desires for us to be released from. And in order to get into that, I want to remind you about a great story. How many of you have ever heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, you've heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, all right. Written, of course, by... C.S. Lewis, all right. And one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. All right, now, some of you know the story, but some of you may be unfamiliar with it, and whether you're familiar or unfamiliar, let me just remind you of a couple of quick highlights. So, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a young man that we're introduced to by the name of Eustace, Okay. Now, Eustace is a great stand-in for all of us, all right? And Eustace is a boy who has got a couple things going for him, or maybe going against him. One is that he's very greedy, right? And he is only interested in the facts, okay? He is not even remotely interested in his cousins who are telling him all about these things that are that are going on in some uh, secret country called what? Narnia. But Eustace is having none of it. He is not remotely interested because he is very selfish, he's very self-absorbed, and he's not interested in anything that would be pretend. And so he begins to tease and bully the Peevances and... Uh, you know, it's this whole thing going on. And then, suddenly, one day, what happens? Tell me the story. What happens? What is he looking at? They're looking at the picture of the dawn treader and the waves blowing. And the next thing that happens, what happens? They're sucked into Narnia and Eustace finds himself, what? Splash in the middle of the ocean. Now, he is not happy about this at all. This does not go with his worldview. And then what happens is that the seamen who are there on the, on the, on the dawn treader, the, the sailors there, take him and, and rescue him from the ocean, bring him, and what does he discover? He discovers these people who are joyful and selfless. And when he finds these joyful, selfless people, it really begins to get under his skin. And the more joyful and the more selfless they are, the less happy and the more selfish he becomes. Now, do you remember what happens next? What happens to Eustace? How does he turn into a dragon? He's laying one day... He's having this dream, and this, you know, he's 
He's, or in, in actually in the midst of the, it's not even a dream, it's just in the midst of the story, he finds himself sleeping on what? A, a dragon's hoard. On the treasure of the dragon, and he's sleeping there on that, and he's thinking dragonish thoughts with his greed and his selfishness, and, and so all of that, and, and when he wakes up, or when he suddenly comes awake, he finds himself that he's become a dragon. But one of the things that you, I mean, at first it's sort of cool, and he's dragonish, and he's doing his dragon thing, and then he realizes that for all of the hoard that he has and the treasure that he has as a dragon, he has one consuming thought, and that is more. And the other thing that he discovers is that the life of a dragon and being a monster creates this incredible sense of isolation and loneliness. There's no one to whom he can have any kind of relationship with. So he realizes at one point in the book, you remember the story, he suddenly realizes what he has become. And he comes to his senses, he has this realization of his selfishness and his greed, and he begins to weep. He begins to weep. And through his tears, he sees a huge and awesome lion beckoning to him to come. And who's our lion? Aslan. Now, if you've read the book, you'll know that that scene isn't quite exactly as it is in the book. Because what's in the book probably was even more or too graphic for them to put up on a movie screen. But let me describe to you what happened. Do you remember? Eustace is in tears. He's recognized his selfishness. He recognizes his greed. He recognizes that there is nothing that he can do about it. And Aslan comes and beckons him and brings him to the edge of this enormous well of water. And as he brings him to that The great beast, the lion, 
directs him to undress. But Eustace doesn't have any clothes on, but then he remembers that dragons are kind of like snakes and that they have a skin that could be shed. And so he peels off this outer skin and he's about to get into the well when he looks into the water and realizes that he's got another skin underneath the first one. So once again, he peels off that skin and he's ready to climb into the well and he looks and he realizes It's at that point that he looks up to Aslan. And Aslan says, you're going to have to let me undress you. Eustace is terrified, as he would be. But he is so desperate that he lays down his ugly dragon self and lets the lion undress him. And what does Aslan do? You saw there in the picture the great claws of Aslan. And he takes his claw and he puts it onto Eustace's chest. And he begins to undress him. And that first tear is so painful to Eustace that he thinks he's going to die. But Aslan continues to do it, and Aslan tears the dragon skin off of Eustace, and then he lifts him up in his great claws, and he throws him into the well of clear, refreshing water. And when Eustace comes out of the well, He's once again a boy. But now, a boy that has been de-dragoned. A boy that now has become his true self. This morning, as we continue to take off the Lord desires today to take off our dragon skin. It's time, people, to take off the dragon. All right. Yeah, if you've got your Bible, you can join me in 1 Timothy 6, or I will put it up here on the screen for us as well. 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul here is writing to his mentee, Timothy, his son in the faith. And he continues throughout First and Second Timothy. He gives him lots of different instructions. And in this particular book, or this particular part of his first letter to Timothy, he says these words to him. But godliness with contentment 
is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. How many of you have heard those words before? Where do you usually hear those words? At a funeral. You brought nothing into the world, and you can't take anything out of it. Like I've said many times here before, I don't think I've ever seen a hearse with a U-Haul. Right? You brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And what does the scripture there say? Money is the root of all evil. Is that what it says? It says it is the love of money. Now this is a particular cha- particularly challenging word for those of us who live in this culture. Because in this culture, in the American culture, the idolizing is the one with the most toys at the end wins. But, listen to the wise words of the Apostle Paul. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. What? What is it about the love of money that is the root of that? What money seems to provide for us is a sense of security and sufficiency. And here is where the love of money becomes a trap. Because if we think that our security and the sufficiency of all that is found in money, money then becomes that which we will worship. Because if that's where our security found, if that is where our sufficiency is found, that then, ipso facto, becomes our God. All the way back into Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wise man, said, whoever loves money never has enough. Remember the immortal words of John D. Rockefeller? He was asked in an interview, how much money will be enough? And he responded, just one more dollar. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? So listen, it isn't the money itself or the stuff itself that it is evil. It is the love of it. It is, the natural, it is natural to desire external things as means, but avarice makes them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes an idol. And when it becomes an idol, it becomes a slave master. 
So this morning when we're talking about taking off the dragon, we're talking about taking off avarice, greed, covetousness. Now, I just want to paint this picture for us, and we're doing this briefly this morning. Don't have time to go into lots and lots of detail, but let me remind you of a couple of things here. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. Here's a startling thought. The roots of personal conflicts and even societal wars can be found in avarice. There are two parts to avarice, to get what we don't have and to keep what we do. Did you ever think about that? The roots of personal conflicts and the roots of even societal wars is rooted in avarice, in desiring to get what we do not have and also to keep and to hold on to and hang on to what we do have. This is the peril. This is the temptation. This is the consequence of avarice. That's why the Ten Commandments tell us in Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And Jesus tells a story. Well, it's not actually a story. It's just an account of an encounter that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm in Luke 18, verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It's really interesting. Jesus is so good at asking questions and so good at kind of setting the stage. So when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus lists off five commands. You shall not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, there are four 
that have to do with our relationship with God. There are four that are vertical, and there are six that are horizontal that have to do with our relationships with one another. Jesus lists five of the six of those horizontal commandments, but there's one that he doesn't list. And what is the one he doesn't list? Do not covet. Do not covet. Because he knows. So he says to the men, you know, here are these things. You know the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've kept all of them. And then Jesus, peering into his heart, as Aslan peered into the heart of Eustace and the dragon, goes right for the jugular and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sell all that you have and give it away. And the reason Jesus was saying that was he was going after the heart. It didn't have to do with the goods that he had, but it had to do with what the goods were doing to the man. Do you understand the distinction? He was being possessed by his possessions, and Jesus wants to set us radically free. So like Aslan, he had his claw out on the rich young ruler's heart. Avarice assumes that life comes from possessing, from having things. That's a lie. We possess that which is less than we are. We are possessed by that which is greater than us, God. He is the only one that can bring true life. Avarice says you can get life from things, but we recognize that we cannot get life from that which we possess. We can only get life from that which possesses us. Which is why Jesus preached on money more than anything else. Because he knew our heart. He knows us as we are. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The alternative to greed forgetting is mercy in giving. If you want to break the power, if you want to allow the dragon to be de-dragoned, in order to be de-dragoned, we need to move into mercy. Receiving mercy, first of all, and this is the grace of contentment. As Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 12 12 and 13, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. God grant us the grace of contentment. When we know that our sufficiency, our security, all that we have, all that we are, all that we need is found in Him, not in our stuff. And then releasing mercy through generosity. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
So the antidote to avarice, the antidote to greed, the antidote to covetousness is contentment and generosity. Contentment, receiving God's mercy, and generosity, releasing God's mercy without any expectation of return. Generosity is open-handed. It reverses the flow from selfishness and self-absorption to selflessness and other blessing and God-absorption. Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You can't escape Aslan's claws. (laughs) His word is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it goes right to the penetrating of our heart. And the psalmist said in Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So my question as I close today is this. What does an undivided heart look like in this area of our lives? In the area of of money, in the area of of, um, things and possessions and all of that. What does this look like? Richard Foster, in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, speaks of the vow of simplicity, and he gives uh, several things here for us to reflect on as we prepare to close this morning. First of all, the vow of simplicity entails a unity of heart and a singleness of purpose. We were just talking about that, the psalmist asked for You cannot serve both God and mammon because you will end up loving the one and hating the other. God needs to give us a singleness of heart in this area, which is so hard in a culture that is constantly pulling us apart. Secondly, there is joy in God's good creation. The things that God has created are good. When he created And each day as he created, he said, and he looked at them and he saw that they were good. So creation itself, material things in and of themselves are not evil. They are good and they are good gifts from him. But we must take joy in God's good creation, not simply in our own creations. Oscar Wilde said, people don't value sunsets because they can't pay for them. Third, simplicity means contentment and trust. Paul said one phrase in 2 Corinthians 6, then he says, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Having nothing yet possessing everything. It means freedom from covetousness. It means that freedom from that ever Increasing desire to acquire more or to hang on for dear life to what we do have. Simplicity means to receive material, or sorry, to, it means moderate, modesty and temperance 
in all things. The use of our resources. There's a, a modesty and a temperance about how we use the things that we have. It means receiving material provision gratefully as from the Lord. It means using money without abusing money. In the power of the Spirit, we conquer and capture money and put it into service for Christ. Remember, money is not neutral. It is a power. And as a power, it must be brought into submission to the power. We must allow the Lord to place His flag upon our resources, upon our money. He is the great I Am. It's all His. He owns it all. We are stewards of it. So we need to learn to use it without abusing it. We need to be available. Simplicity means simply availability. We're freed from grasping for more so we have more time and energy to to pour out because we're not trying to grasp and get. We can give freely. We can practice hospitality. And finally, we can give joyfully and generously out of our gifts that we have been given. We give ourselves. We give the product of our lives work. We give. Giving is a powerful antidote to covetousness. And you can't outgive God. So remember, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And in Hebrews 11, it talks about those who had nothing or who gave everything. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before me endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is so easy to grow weary and lose heart in this area of our lives. Because we're swimming constantly upstream. But God's grace, we can't de-dragon ourselves, but we can let him de-dragon us today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, I'm going to actually ask Marla Hershey. I didn't tell you in advance that I was going to do this because I just thought of it now, but I'd like Marla, if you would please come. And I'm going to ask you to pray for us. As you know, Mo and Marla are here right now, home from Laos, where they serve in ministry. And they actually living out what we were just talking about in the simplicity and singleness of purpose. Um, In their retirement, rather than pursuing the American dream, they pursued the kingdom dream. And they divested themselves of everything over here to go there. And so I'm going to ask you to pray for us as a congregation. And if we could just stand to our feet right now. And then we're going to close with one song, You Are My All in All, as our declaration here. But um, 
Marla, if, if we could just open our hands to receive prayer this morning and receive the grace of God because you can't grit your teeth and do this. It's something only God can do in us and through us from the inside out. So, thank you. Well, Lord, you know I'm unworthy. Um, I'm learning more and more about confession, Lord, and, and I confess before this group that it's not so much about how much you hold on to, it's just what you're holding on to. And so even though we may not have a house and lands and all of that, God, I confess to you that sometimes we hold on to the stuff that we have. And so, Lord, I pray for this congregation. I pray that you teach them what confession is all about. Because, God, we need to come to you. We need to come to you um, as dragons, because that's who we are. And God, it's not a bad thing to confess that, yeah, we've held on to stuff. We've, um, we'd rather do what pleases self than pleases you, whether we have much or little. And so God, teach this congregation, teach each of us, to confess to you, to, to come before you and let your claws tear us open. And yeah, Lord, sometimes it hurts because we don't like to see the ugliness in our own lives. But God, again, it's not about how much we have. It's what that stuff means to us. And God, help us, each one of us, whether we have much or little, because I see the very poor sometimes holding on to stuff rather than, you know, I can't let go of this one idol and give my life to God. So it's not about how much we have. It's about what we're holding on to. And God, let us just open our hands and let you take them. And Lord, help us to start each day with, Hey, God, <laughs> what do you want me to give up today? What can I do without, and what can I do for you? And God will fall down, and that's okay, because you're always there to pick us up and lift us up and love us. Oh, God, you have so much love for us. And so, God, I know you love each person here, and I know you love this congregation. But sometimes, God, you ask us to, to look at ourselves and see what it is that you want. Because what is greater than to give it all to you, the author and finisher of our faith? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. In your precious, holy, and wonderful name we pray. Amen. Could you just open your hands one more time? And now I pray that you, that we all may be filled afresh even this day with the immeasurable love of God the Father and the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son and the inexhaustible strength and power and comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours as you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with the banner of his name of his favor, 
of his blessing over your life. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love, mercy, and goodness will chase you down each and every day. Go in his grace and goodness. In Jesus' name.